You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Thank you for returning for this episode Roaring 20. So, yes, there's been a little hiatus while I went off sunning myself. Thanks to my prolonged session of relaxing under a burning sky, my skin colour has been altered from PVA glue white to a cool snow. I think maybe a few more weeks and I could have reached a ghostly beige. Still, it's very handy to be so visible in the dark, a superpower that, coupled with my incredible gift of not being able to grow a whole beard at once, has the criminal classes trembling at the mention of my name. Hey, who wants to hear the sexiest advert in history? You boys and girls won't object to Grove's emulsified nose drops. There's nothing unpleasant about them. They don't run out of your nose and make you messy. They don't run down the back of your throat and make you sick. What's more, they don't burn or sting the inside of your nose. Mother is interested in getting results when you have a cold in the head, and she'll get results much faster with Grove's emulsified nose drops. Tell mother to procure a bottle at the corner drugstore. These nose drops are white and creamy. They don't look, taste, or smell like medicine, yet they are highly effective. That's because they are medically superior, because they stay up in the nose. Any child can understand that nose drops that stay up in the nose will do more good than nose drops that run right out. Impress this fact upon Mother, and she will undoubtedly let you try these new type nose drops when you have a head cold or stuffed head. All drugstores sell Grove's emulsified nose drops. And they're really more economical than the old-fashioned kind because you get more for your money and because you can use less. Ask Mother to get a bottle today. Nose drops and live orgasms. I get the feeling that this episode will be responsible for a few births in nine months' time if I don't do something to cool you all down. Hang on a sec, let's see what I have here. Yeah. 
gasoline program. Oh, no. Wait a moment. Try this instead. You know, in a great many businesses and trades, a man's or a woman's hands are exposed either to weather or to such things as paints, chemicals, and abrasives. Now that more and more people are doing industrial work, that's truer than ever. Maybe you or someone in your family has a job like this. It's tough on hands. So let me tell you about a marvelous, simple routine. Before work, smooth a light protective coating of Vaseline petroleum jelly on your... My apologies. Try this. Meanwhile, imagine, if you please, four airplane engines, their propellers whirling at 2,000 revolutions per minute. Now imagine the pull on those engines, the vibration it means. Such vibration would be staggering to the flying instruments of the plane and to the nerves of the crew. Yes, it would be, but for one seemingly simple device, rubber engine mounts, which cushion the engine and isolate that vibration. Now, engine mounts made of rubber cemented to steel. Some time ago, a cement was developed to do that job. It was a cement made of natural rubber. But recently, with natural rubber so scarce, a cement made of synthetic rubber had to be developed. So Goodyear, with 20 years' experience in synthetic rubber, took the job on itself. It wasn't easy. Many had failed before. It took months of experiment. It meant going the long way around, making synthetic rubber, turning... (sighs) Good God, I think I may have accidentally sterilised a few of you. So, the film club choice for this week is a strange one. It's not a full-length movie, per se. It's an animated short from Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies, and it's called Hollywood Steps Out. The reason I chose it is because it contains some brilliant caricatures of classic Hollywood stars, including Cary Grant, James Cagney, Clark Gable, Greta Garbo, Anne Sheridan, Rita Hayworth, Humphrey Bogart, William Powell, Peter Lorre. If you're a fan of old movies, you have to check it out. It's only eight minutes long. Just go to attaboyclarence.com and click on Film Club. It's over on the left. Isn't it weird that the name Humphrey just kind of disappeared with Bogart. It's as though the entire planet decided that no one would ever again be cool enough to pull off that name. So the the only people you see nowadays with the name Humphrey are those retired peers of the realm who pronounce it Humphrey and sort of pot around the garden in their slippers, watering their plants and singing songs they've just heard for the first time on BBC Radio 2. So please, for once in one's life, let one get what one wants. Lord knows it would be the first time. Humphrey. Sexist advertisement Clarkson. Women are concerned with how they look from the age of eight to, well, I suppose must be 80. And that gives the male half of the world a great deal to be thankful for. Fortunately, wherever women do care about their looks, our product is always at hand but I reluctantly suspect that there may be one or two women left in this audience who haven't tried it yet. If those lonely ladies will let Lux Toilet Soap speak for itself, I'm sure they'll find it very eloquent and convincing. So, to all the lonely, unwashed ladies, if you don't use Lux, you're basically going to die alone, you shriveled old spinsters. How about we bend the truth? A responsible consulting organization has reported the results of a continuing study by a competent medical specialist and his staff on the effects of smoking Chesterfield cigarettes. A group of people from various walks of life was organized to smoke only Chesterfields. For six months, this group of men and women smoked their normal amount of Chesterfields, 10 to 40 a day. At the beginning and at the end of the six months period, each smoker was given a thorough examination, including X-ray pictures, by the medical specialist and his assistants. 
The examination covered the sinuses, as well as the nose, ears, and throat. The medical specialist, after a thorough examination of every member of the group, stated, It is my opinion that the ears, nose, throat, and accessory organs of all participating subjects examined by me were not adversely affected in the six months period by smoking the cigarettes provided. Yes, but your lungs will look like Gary Boosie's therapist. to give a big thank you this week to goodpodcasts.com who came out with a list of the best five film podcasts and guess who's in there the q filmcast correct but guess who else is in there that's right attaboy clarence is sitting right in there so thank you to good podcasts do go along and check out the site at goodpodcasts.com and show him some love on twitter too he's been a tireless supporter of independent podcasting and deserves every fist bump you can all manage although not all at once or end up looking like shane mcgowan's pillow one tries to say goodbye but one chills one tries to walk away but one stumbles Though one tries to hide it, it's clear One's world crumbles when one is not near Up until yesterday, this episode was going to be dedicated to Hollywood movies based on true stories. I even had the films picked out. They were going to include Yankee Doodle Dandy and Man of a Thousand Faces. I was on the brink of including Night and Day, the Cole Porter biopic starring Cary Grant. Lots to choose from because Hollywood was giving the dream treatment to quite a few true life stories even back then. But as the choices were made, one thing caught my eye. You see, in the 30s and 40s, there was one actor who stood alone when it came to bringing true stories to the screen. He didn't just turn up and play the part. This is a man who threw himself completely into the character he was playing, whether it was a fictional or non-fictional role. He would research extensively on the subject he was portraying. He would read everything he could lay his hands on, try to assume their mannerisms to the tiniest degree. He was a master of accents, and he possessed an incredible knowledge of makeup effects that he'd acquired while acting in the theatre, something he'd been involved in since he was an infant. He was such an effective actor that by the age of 12, he was convincingly playing an 80-year-old man on stage. His talent for transformation was astonishing. There was a famous joke about Lon Chaney, who was considered a master of makeup in the early 20th century. People used to say, don't step on that beetle, it might be Lon Chaney. Well, this particular actor was considered by many to be the true successor to Lon Chaney. He wouldn't just act in a role. This is a man who would completely disappear into a role. Not only did he possess a remarkable talent for transformation, he was also, quite simply, the greatest actor of his generation. His performances leave you scorched. The cruel fact, though, is that today he's rarely remembered alongside the Cagneys and the Bogarts and the Gables. Hardly anyone remembers his name. The film buffs amongst you may well already know who I'm talking about. He certainly has a following, and he certainly appeared in hits that have endured 
to this day. He was nominated for an Oscar six times and won once Best Actor in 1937. And yet he's only really canonised by people who are willing to dig into history, and it's a tragedy. Two of this man's films were on my list to tell you about today, but I said from the start that this podcast would always try to throw a light on films and people you may not have heard too much about. So instead of doing what history has done, which is mention him in passing, I think all four reviews today should be his movies, and I'd very respectfully like to dedicate this show to Hollywood's most unsung hero, a genuine chameleon, and one of the most devastating actors to have ever appeared on screen. Mr. Paul Muni. He first acted in Hollywood in 1929 for Fox in a couple of unremarkable films and feeling a little disillusioned, he went back to the theatre. But he was tempted back in 1932 by Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks, who knew without a doubt that he was the ideal choice for their new gangster movie, Scarface. Listen, little boy, in this business there's only one law you got to follow to keep out of trouble. Do it first, do it yourself, and keep on doing it. This is the story of Tony Camonte, a brutish hoodlum who, at the film's beginning, betrays his boss and murders him on the orders of a rival gang leader and then begins an ultra-violent rise to the top, slaughtering his way through the gangs of Chicago while trying to hold his family together and work out exactly who he can trust. It's a blistering movie. There's hardly a minute that passes without someone being betrayed and murdered. But it's done so chillingly and violently that of all the classic gangster movies, Scarface is the one that feels the most modern. It also has no problem whatsoever in exploring some very dark themes. Tony's relationship with his sister, who's played here by Anne Vorschach, is very disquieting. There's definitely more than brotherly love involved here. What do you mean, catch me? I wasn't doing nothing. You was kissing him. Sure, what of it? Well, I don't like it. You're missing lots of fun, Tom. Well, listen, I don't want anybody kissing my sister, understand? You're in my arms. I don't want anybody putting their hands on you. What do you think you're doing? Well, I'm your brother. You don't act it. You act more like, I don't know, sometimes I think... Well, I don't care what you think. You do what I say. Sure, and never have any fun. Well, never have any fun. You call that fun, eh? Run around with guys like that. That's fun. In fact, it's Tony's relationship with his sister that ultimately brings about his downfall and in a radically unconventional turn of events. It's brother and sister who face the climax together. It's brave stuff and remarkably different from anything else of the period. It outviolences other gangster movies from the period, such as Little Caesar and The Public Enemy. And when you watch it, you'll see what I mean. It's almost callous when it comes to the murders, which are shocking and numerous. Friends and enemies get wiped out in equal measure. It has a really unsafe feeling about it, as though everyone's hanging on a knife edge. It also stars Karen Morley, who I mentioned in episode 16. She was blacklisted in 1947 and lost her entire career as a leading lady. You can see why that was such a tragedy here. She's the quintessential gangster's mole in this. Low down and sexy and wisecracking. Then you have Boris Karloff as a rival gang leader, Gaffney, who leads a rampage of revenge against Tony when things start to get really messy. You have George Raft as Guino, Tony's right-hand man. This was his star-making role, and it also helped to create one of gangster fiction's greatest stereotypes. Perhaps you've seen a cartoon where a gangster will flip a coin repeatedly. Well, it's George Raft who began that here. His story arch is brilliantly played. It's colourful, but also loaded with tragedy. 
Anne Vorschach is utterly hypnotizing as Cheska, Tony's sister. She's full of sexual awakening and longing to live a free life, but held down by this absolute monster of a brother and the unsettling, incestuous relationship that they have. And at the heart of it, you have Paul Muni absolutely cutting a swathe through the film. He's so believable as a grinning murderer, all slack-shouldered and easygoing when he's strolling around the boys' club amongst his fellow murderers, but then turns to absolute steely terror when he's on the rampage and every murder he commits is done with such joy in his face that it's easy to see why audiences were so terrified of him. What is this, a pinch? No, just bringing you a valentine. Don't you know it's Valentine's Day? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Come on, line up, you guys. Over there. All seven of you. What's the gag? Is the heat on? Plenty. Face the wall. Put your mitts up. All of you. star and it's easy to see why. He followed it up with another classic of pre-code cinema entitled I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. Muni starred here as a soldier, James Allen, who returns from the First World War and immediately sinks into poverty due to the massive unemployment. He sets off across the country to find work and gets accidentally caught up in a robbery and sentenced to 10 years on a chain gang where he's routinely brutalised and forced into slave labour on the rock piles. Come on, get up. Quit your stalling. I was just wiping the sweat off my face. Have you got it knocked off? That won't do no good. You've got to ask their permission to wipe the sweat off. Wiping it off! All right, Thomas, wipe it off. Ah, I like that. In the first place, you've got to get their permission to sweat. When he's almost driven mad by the experience, he stages a breakout and escapes to Chicago, where he takes on a new identity and builds a business, but soon his landlady finds out his secret and starts to blackmail him. If you wanted proof that crime dramas of the 30s could turn your stomach, then go no further. This movie is a harrowing experience from the robbery onwards. It's a masterclass in tension and drama. Never mind the suspense of whether or not the guards will notice Alan's slow escape plan starting to take form. But the escape sequence itself, it has to be said, is stunningly directed by Mervyn Leroy, whose use of quick shots and sound is uh, magnificent. Alan asks for permission to go into the bushes to relieve himself. When he gets there, it's a white-knuckle ride as he struggles to get the chains off over his feet and make a run for it, while the guard keeps looking over to see what's going on. He then switches to a very dark drama where he's trapped in a loveless marriage with an absolute harpy, played by Glenda Farrell, who sees him as a meal ticket when he starts to do well in business and blackmails him into staying with her. You're going to be a big shot someday with plenty of sugar, and I'm going to ride right along. Get that? <laughs> I'm no fool. I'd be a sucker to let you go now. But I'm in love with another woman. Oh, that's just too bad. Why don't you play the game square? Square? So that you and your sweet mama can give me the grand go-by, huh? Ah, be yourself. If you don't listen to reason, I'll find some way. You do and you'll serve out your time. It's no worse than serving out my time with you. You'll be sorry you said that. Now listen. You've held a sword over my head about long enough. It's about time you called quits. You've been pulling a bluff on me, and I've been fool enough and coward enough to fall for it. Oh, you filthy good-for-nothing convict. A bluff, eh? You will see. You will see. What's that doing? 
Give me the police station. What's that? Damn. You don't think that'll stop me, do you? This film couldn't have worked after 1934. The haze of it would have demanded that justice was done in the end and all loose ends were neatly tied up. But because this was before the code came in, Warner Brothers took the extraordinary step of not supplying audiences with a happy ending. Instead, it got a half hopeful, half tragic one that ends with one of cinema's most famous lines as Muni backs away into darkness and an uncertain future. I can't let you go like this. Can't you tell me where you're going? Will you run? Do you need any money? But you must, Jim. How do you live? I steal! And talk about impact on society. Audiences were so appalled by the plight of Muni's character that the issue of chain gangs became a major talking point across the country and were eventually abolished as a result. It works as a drama. It works as a message movie. But most of all, it works as a thriller. It's true edge-of-your-seat stuff, and definitely not to be missed. Muni's two hits in 1932 propelled him into Hollywood's A-list, most notably for the reason that the two roles were so diverse. You had his grotesque, cackling Italian murderer in Scarface, and his terrified, genteel man on the run in I Am A Fugitive From A Chain Gang. And in just two films, Paul Muni proved that he could play absolutely any part to perfection. He followed it up with The World Changes, Black Fury and a couple of other hits throughout 1933 to 35. But in 1936, he chose as his next project the story of Louis Pasteur playing the title role. Come, come, Pasteur. Tell us precisely what you mean. Sire, the hospitals of Paris are pest houses. There's scarcely a doctor in the city who's not carrying death on his hands and instruments. Because of microbes, monsieur? Your private menagerie of invisible bees? Exactly. Dr. Charbonnet could see them for himself. If he took the trouble to use his microscope, he could watch them multiply into murderous millions. They breed in filth. They may start from the gutters of Paris tonight and by tomorrow claim some mother from this very court. Preposterous. To think that a human being could be destroyed by an animal 10,000 times smaller than a flea. So, shockingly, this is the story of Louis Pasteur, the French chemist whose research into microbes and discoveries of vaccination and pasteurization have saved countless lives ever since. This is the Hollywood version of his life, and so he's a wise sage who's never wrong and strives to better the world through science. If you're going into this expecting a warts and all portrayal of a man, despite his greatness, you will not find it here. Uh, what you will find, however, is a captivating, fascinating drama, played for all the world as though it were a thriller. Marvelously acted, impeccably scripted, and beautifully produced. Every single scene is a total joy. We go from watching Pasteur disgraced because he's dared to stand against the doctors of France who do not believe that they should be made to wash their hands before they operate on patients. So Pasteur is essentially exiled to the French countryside where he uses his knowledge to fight a hideous anthrax plague that is devastating French livestock. When the French government find out what's happening, they set the ultimate challenge to find out once and for all if Pasteur really knows what he's talking about. Friends, colleagues, I should like to propose an experiment that will rid us once and for all of this medical mountebank, Louis Pasteur. In my laboratory, I've found that I can produce anthrax in healthy sheep by injecting into them the dark, poisonous blood of an animal already affected with the disease. This treatment invariably results in death. 
Let us take 50 normal, healthy sheep, 25 of which will be vaccinated by Monsieur Pasteur. The other 25 will remain as they are. I shall then infect all 50 sheep with anthrax by the method I've just explained. And I defy any man or any vaccine to save one of them. Splendid nonsense. Pasteur would be a fool to try it. He wouldn't dare. Dr. Martel. Well, I... I can't take it upon myself. <laughs> this treatment is all that you say that it is. Yes, let him prove it. Let him prove it. I dare him to try it. I accept. That's just the opening gambit. Pasteur still finds himself battling against the powers that be, as he also decides to attempt to rid the world of rabies by discovering an alternative to the ineffective red-hot poker that the doctors insist upon. Louis! Louis, stop! Not hydrophobia! Marie, I've pledged myself to find a cure. I can't stop now. Not until I've exhausted every effort to rid the world of this deadly disease. It's a fantastic movie and a surprisingly accurate history lesson. Okay, so we only see the valiant, noble side of the man himself, but so what? As a piece of entertainment, it rolls along at a surprisingly fast pace, stopping to explain just often enough for Luddites like myself and generating a real sense of tension as he risks his professional career and in some cases his own life to fight for what he believes in. Paul Munich won the Oscar for Best Actor for the role, and deservedly so. He's incredible in the role. He simply disappears behind Pasteur's face. It's as though the man himself has been resurrected. Watch this after watching Scarface and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and you simply won't believe that this is the same man. He looks decades older. His face is different from the way he uses his eyebrows to the way his mouth falls when he's relaxed. He holds himself completely differently. In Scarface, he swings loose. He's all shoulders. In this, he's pinched. He's more upright. He reminds me a little bit of David Suchet's portrayal of Hercule Poirot. Bear in mind that this isn't decades after his breakthrough performance. This is four years after he played Tony Camonte and James Allen. Yet he looks and even sounds like a much older man. It's breathtaking stuff. Perhaps sensing that biopics were his forte, uh, in 1937, Muni took on the title role in The Life of Emile Zola. While you continue to grow fatter and richer publishing your nauseating confectionery, I shall become a mole, digging here, rooting there, stirring up the whole rotten mess where life is hard, raw and ugly. You will not like the smell of my books, Monsieur Larue. Neither will the public prosecutor. But when the stench is strong enough, maybe something will be done about it. There. Again, shock horror, this tells the story of the French author, Emile Zola, who begins as a firebrand writer, rallying against the social injustices of 19th century France by writing inflammatory literature, telling the nation of the poverty and uh, inequality of the class system. It isn't long before Zola becomes rich and famous and falling victim to the class system he's been fighting against. He grows lazy and overweight and stops writing altogether. He chooses instead to enjoy his money in middle age. But then, a conspiracy 
conspiracy in the highest echelons of the French army causes an innocent man to be sent to Devil's Island, and when the man's wife comes to Zola to ask him to do what he can to expose the corruption and free her husband, Zola finds himself unable to resist the opportunity to stand up for the oppressed once more, even if it means that losing will cost him his freedom. For over a year, the Minister of War and the General Staff have known that Dreyfus is innocent. But they have kept this knowledge to themselves. And those men sleep, and they have wives and children they love. One speaks of the honor of the army. The army is the people of France themselves. And the Dreyfus affair is a matter pertaining to that army. Dreyfus cannot be vindicated without condemning the whole general staff. That is why the general staff has screamed as the Harvey to demolish Dreyfus once more. Such then, Mr. President, is the simple truth. It is a fearful truth. But I affirm with intense conviction the truth is on the march and nothing will stop it. While it's not as purely entertaining as the story of Louis Pasteur, the life of Emile Zola is a hypnotic film to watch, and the responsibility of that lies directly with Paul Muni's performance. I said that he disappeared into the character of Louis Pasteur. Well, in this film, it's as though Paul Muni never existed in the first place. Even his jawline is different. His speech patterns are slightly overplayed, meaning that he loses breath at the end of some sentences, which adds age to his playing of Zola. In this film, he's seen as a young man at the film's beginning, and as an old man at the end, and it's quite simply an outstanding performance. He gives playfulness, fury, anger, eloquence, um, conviction, and not once does he ever look like a man in makeup. It seems as though the film was made over a period of 40 years. The, the transformation is unbelievable. But in the final courtroom scene where he lays down his soul at the feet of the judges and at the feet of the watching country, that this performance reaches dizzying heights. It's electric stuff to watch. Tremendous pressure has been put upon you. Save the army, convict Zola, and save France. I say to you, pick up that challenge. Save the army, and save France. But do it by letting truth conquer. Not only is an innocent man crying out for justice, but more, much more, a great nation is in desperate danger of forfeiting her honor. Do not take upon yourselves a fault, the burden of which you will forever bear in history. A judicial blunder has been committed. The condemnation of an innocent man induced the acquittal of a guilty man. And now, today, you're asked to condemn me because I rebelled on seeing our country embarked on this terrible cause. At this solemn moment, in the presence of this tribunal, which is the representative of human justice, before you gentlemen of the jury, before France, before the whole world, I swear that Dreyfus is innocent. By my 40 years of work, by all that I have won, by all that I have written to spread the spirit of France, I swear that Dreyfus is innocent. 
May all that melt away. May my name perish if Dreyfus be not innocent. He is innocent. Muni was nominated again for the Oscar, and while the film went on to win Best Picture, the Oscar for Best Actor went to Spencer Tracy for Captain's Courageous. I like Spencer Tracy, but Paul Muni should have walked home with his second Oscar that night. His performance is one of the greatest I've ever seen in a movie. To accurately portray every stage of a man's life, starting from an idealistic young reformer to a lazy, overweight has-been, to an old man with a cause, and to end with that courtroom scene, takes a talent that next to no other actor since has possessed. The only actor I think that's come close to matching Paul Muni in terms of sheer acting ability and brilliance is Robert De Niro in his revolutionary days, days that are sadly only a pinprick in the rearview mirror. Muni went on to make about one movie a year. Uh, he was an intensely private man who liked nothing better than to read and spend time at home. He was incredibly embarrassed when he was recognised in public, and so he didn't venture outside much, but he always retained an absolute passion for the art of acting, and so chose his projects very carefully and took time to enjoy the rewards that his roles brought him. Unfortunately, in the mid-50s, he began to suffer from an eye ailment, uh, which, when it was diagnosed, turned out to be a tumour, which led to his eye being removed, which then led to massively impaired vision for the remainder of his life, and essentially saw to it that he had to retire. His last acting appearance was in 1962 in a television series called Saints and Sinners. From then on, he was completely blind until his death in 1967 at the age of 71. Paul Muni's film career began in 1929 and ended in 1959 with just 25 film credits to his name, indicating just how exacting he was when it came to choosing his film roles. Nevertheless, every single performance was special, and if you haven't had the opportunity of checking out one of Hollywood's true greats, I urge you to seek out the four films I've mentioned and bask in the magic of a forgotten king of the screen. Well, the radio play could hardly be anything else. I do realise that in the last few episodes, I've gone rather heavy on the Lux radio theatre shows, but they did produce such amazing adaptations of films that it's sometimes hard to resist. However, I will make sure that in the next series of shows, I do diversify a bit more. So this is the story of Louis Pasteur, starring Paul Muni in his original role. I do hope you enjoyed it. And I'll see you on the other side to announce the winner of the competition. Hollywood, California, Monday, November 23rd. The Lux Radio Theater presents Paul Muni in the story of Louis Pasteur with Fritz Leiber and Crawford Kent. Lux presents Hollywood. Our stars, Paul Muni, Fritz Leiber, Crawford Kent, and Barbara Luddy. Our guests, Adrian, Hollywood's most noted designer, and William K. Howard, director. Our producer, Cecil B. DeMille. Our conductor, Louis Silvers. 
the makers of Lux Flakes, together with our stars and guests, welcome you all to another hour in the Lux Radio Theater. Here's a word to the ladies. Try Lux Flakes for washing dishes. Ordinary soaps often dry your skin, making it rough and red and making the nails brittle. Lux Flakes contain no harmful alkali. They protect the natural oil in your skin, safeguard your manicure, and give your hands beauty care right in the dishpan. Lux Flakes are just as good for washing dishes as for washing fine fabrics, and that's saying a lot. And now, it's time to hear from our producer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Cecil B. DeMille. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Paul Muni is a paragon of paradoxes. Born in Vienna, he doesn't waltz. Trained in the Yiddish art theater, he's been playing the role of a Chinese in The Good Earth for the past six months. At the age of 11, Mr. Muni went on the stage in the part of a bent and withered old man. The whiskers he wore were obviously false. But he grew his own beard for the story of Louis Pasteur. And here are some sidelights on his sidelines. He plays the violin and talks to strangers for relaxation. He rehearses all his lines into a dictaphone to study his own inflections. He experiments with makeup at home and obtains material for his characterizations firsthand. In other words, if he's playing the part of a Chinese, he spends a great deal of his time in the Chinese quarter. And if he's to be a gangster on the screen, he mingles with the gangster element. And if he's a scientist, he reads everything available on the science he's supposed to represent. It's nearly two years since Mr. Muni's last appearance on the air. Then, as tonight, he was heard from the Lux Radio Theater and starred in his favorite stage play, Consular at Law. Tonight, we hear him in his favorite screenplay, The Story of Louis Pasteur. The part of Dr. Chabonnet is played by the same distinguished performer who enacted it on the screen, Mr. Fritz Leiber. Crawford Kent will be heard as Dr. Radice. Louis Silvers raises his baton to start the music as the Lux Radio Theater presents the story of Louis Pasteur, starring Paul Muni. Paris in the 1860s. We're in the laboratory of Louis Pasteur, the long, sparsely furnished room is lined with deep shadows. Along the walls stand crates of guinea pigs and squeaking mice. And in the center, a crudely built table is littered with twisted test tubes and cauldrons. It's early evening. Under the garish light of an overhanging lamp, Pasteur leans over his microscope, his eyes glued to the black cylinder. His wife enters the room and stands for a moment watching him. Louis. Hmm? Louis. Yes? Haven't you worked long enough? Aren't you tired? Tired? You've been here all day since early this morning. I know, I know. Uh, Roux? Yes? Uh, have you finished with those slides? In a moment, monsieur. Hurry them along. Louis, I... I brought the newspaper for you. Newspaper? What do I want There's with There's something it? in it you should know. Dr. Frederick is dead. Dead? He... He was killed. Shot. Who did it? The husband of one of his patients. Listen. When asked by the magistrate why he had killed Dr. Frederick, the man shouted, he killed my wife with his dirty hands. He gave her fever, childbed fever. 
Then the prisoner produced a pamphlet which read, Doctors, surgeons, wash your hands. Boil your instruments. Microbes cause disease. The pamphlet was signed, Louis Pasteur. Hmm, my pamphlet. Louis, don't you know what it means? They're blaming you for the death of Dr. Frederick. Nonsense. They are. Dr. Charbonnet, Dr. Redis, all of them. They call you a murderer, a menace to science. And they are a menace to humanity. If they should appeal to the emperor... Let them. The emperor's no fool. Look at the facts, Marie. Three out of every ten mothers today die in childbirth. Why? Because our learned physicians are too pig-headed to realize that germs have the power to invade the bloodstream and cause disease. But, Louis, you tell them to wash their hands, boil their instruments. Still, you can't be sure. You haven't found the germs. But I will. I will. Papa! Oh, what is it, Annette? A letter for Papa. A messenger brought in the carriage. There were two soldiers with him. Louis. Uh, give me the letter. Hmm. It's from the Emperor. The Emperor? Then it's just as I thought. Charbonnet and Radice have gone to him. Quiet, my dear. It's not as you thought. Listen to this. At the request of the court chamberlain and the command of His Majesty Napoleon III, you are invited to a reception at the palace. Oh, Louis! A carriage will be sent for you at 8 o'clock next Thursday. A reception at the palace? Louis, what an honor! It is my chance, Marie. Radis, Charbonnet, Rossignol, they'll all be there. It is my chance at last. Your Majesty, this man Pasteur is not even a doctor. He's a mere chemist. I know, Charbonnet, but his work interests the Empress. It was at her suggestion that I invited him tonight. Yes, Dr. Charbonnet. If I am not mistaken, Pasteur was instrumental in discovering the cause of fermentation of wine some years ago. Yes, Your Majesty. I recall it now. He claimed to have discovered little animals in it. Infinitesimal beasts. And he still does, sire. Only now he finds them everywhere. But are there such creatures? Do they really exist? Your Majesty, microscopic organisms have long been observed. Yes. They spring into being of their own accord, wherever there is putrid matter or fermentation. They are the result, rather than the cause, of disease. Oh, I see. By heating wine to certain temperature, Monsieur Pasteur was able to destroy them. I presume he plans to cure blood poisoning in the same manner, namely, by boiling our blood. Heaven forbid. It's not unlikely, I assure you. Dr. Chabonnet, I'm afraid you exaggerate. I, too, have read Pasteur's pamphlet. It says nothing about boiling blood, merely to boil the instruments you surgeons use. Madame, if I did anything so absurd as to boil my instruments or scrub my hands, they'd think I was a witch doctor resorting to charms and laugh me out of the hospital. That would be a novelty, monsieur. Most people who go to hospitals are carried out dead. Your Majesty. What is it? Monsieur Louis Pasteur has arrived, Your Majesty. Oh, yes. Show him to the East Room and ask him to wait for me there. Yes, Your Majesty. Charbonnet, find Dr. Racinol and Dr. Radis and any others who might be interested. We see Pasteur together and discover for ourselves whether the man is a genius. Impossible. I refuse to believe it. One moment, Dr. Radis. Yes, I 
Faster. Will you please tell us precisely what you mean? I will, sire. The hospitals of Paris are pest houses. There's scarcely a doctor in the city who's not carrying death on his hands and on his instruments. Because of microbes, monsieur? Your private menagerie of invisible beasts? Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Charbonnet could see them for himself if he took the trouble to use his microscope. He could watch them multiply into murderous millions. They breed in filth. They may start from the gutters of Paris tonight and by tomorrow claim some mother from this very court. Preposterous to think that a human being could be destroyed by an animal 10,000 times smaller than a flea. It's as though an army of ants should destroy your majesty's empire. <laughs> Listen. A young woman died here tonight. The wife of the coachman who brought me. She was your patient, Charbonnet. A victim of your bigotry. You dare? You accuse me? But that isn't the end. The woman who attended her, your nurse, will carry the infection to your next and more illustrious patient, the Comtesse Gabrielle de Villefort. Your Majesty. Stop! I've had enough. You should know better, Pasteur. The Comtesse Gabrielle is Her Majesty's sister. I regret, sire, but death knows no rank. Silence! In the preservation of wine and beer, you have been of service to France. We appreciate it. In the future, you will confine your work to that field or suffer my displeasure. That will be all. Your Majesty. That will be all, Pasteur. Good night, Your Majesty. Carriage, please. Yes, Monsieur. Monsieur Pasteur. Yes. Permit me, please. I am Jean Martel, physician and surgeon, doctor of medicine from the Sorbonne, secretary of hygiene, member of the International Society of Doctors at Edinburgh. Personally, I'm convinced that there is some truth in what you say. You honor me. Why, Charbonnet's a fool. When it comes to anything new or the least I bit beg your pardon. Aren't you Dr. Charbonnet's assistant? Why, yes, I suppose I am, but... It is your duty to respect him, then. Not to ridicule him. I, monsieur? Good night. Annette, run and open the door for him. Yes, Mama. Oh, you, you will light the candles on the cake. Thirty-eight. Only thirty-eight, and all ready to have done so much for the world. Oh, she's coming. Open the door, Annette. Happy birthday, happy birthday. Hmm? What? Oh, oh, oh. Thank you, thank you, my dear. Uh, what's the matter, Papa? Louis. Yes? Is anything wrong? You'll have to pack, Marie. We're leaving Paris tomorrow. Tomorrow? Louis, what happened? I've stepped too hard on the toes of our doctors. I've insulted the Academy of Medicine. They forbid me to work on human diseases. We must leave here, Marie. Yes, Louis. When I was a boy, I used to read of scientists fleeing from the cities to avoid persecution. It thrilled me. 
Yes, I didn't realize what a nuisance it was. But, uh, monsieur, uh, perhaps you might better apologize to the Academy. A few lines. Take might. back what we know is true. Never. I'd die first. Don't worry, who. Someday we're going to prove that we're right. To the Emperor, to the Academy, to the world. In a moment, we will continue with the next radio theatre presentation of Louis Pasteur, starring Paul Muni. But now we're going to the stockroom of Columbia's wardrobe department on Gower Street. A seamstress is taking one of her new assistants through the department, showing how and where the dresses and coats are kept. Now, over here are Irene Dunn's dresses. These are the ones she wore in Theodora Goes Wild. Mm. So might as well take the pink one out. It's got to be washed before we make it over for another picture. Washed? Why, can you wash a dress like that? Oh, yes. They were 15 days making that particular scene. And I know that dress has been washed at least three times. Well, I didn't believe you could wash that kind of material. Oh, my, yes. It washes beautifully in Lux Flakes. Of course, we wouldn't risk it in anything else. You see, these clothes are worth a lot of money, and we can't take chances. They've made Lux a rule here in the wardrobe department. You better keep that in mind, too. Always see that there's plenty of Lux. Now, on this side over here... All the big Hollywood studios use Lux Flakes for washing fine fabrics because they've discovered it's the sure, safe way to keep them looking like new. Lux contains no harmful alkali, and with Lux, there's no harsh cake soap rubbing. Even the sheerest materials that are safe in water alone, you can put into gentle Lux suds with perfect assurance. Try it for all your precious washables. Your silks, rayons, woolens, and fine cottons. You will love the way they come out of Lux, clean, fresh, and brand new looking. And once again, Mr. DeMille. Eight years have gone by. And while men fought and killed each other in the Franco-Prussian War, Pasteur fought microbes, the real enemy of all mankind. The war is over now, and the government hard-pressed to meet the heavy indemnity imposed by Prussia has turned its attention to rebuilding the ravaged countryside. A devastating plague, anthrax, is destroying the livestock of France, the government's chief source of revenue. In only one small province, the district of Arbois, is there any immunity to the dread disease? To that district are sent two representatives of the Academy of Medicine, Dr. Radice and Jean Martel. Their coach comes to an abrupt halt near a herd of sheep. Look at that herd, Dr. Radice. They seem to be healthy enough. Luck, that's all. Pure luck. These fields have become immune. Yes, but how? Why? Oh, my dear Martel, such questions are beyond the scope of science. When you ask me how or why, I must refer you to the theologians. Thanks. I'll ask at this farmhouse first. Well, Martel, don't waste your time. Asking questions is never a waste of time. Oh, but my dear fellow... That is the future of France. Our whole financial structure lies in the health of our livestock. If we're to meet our indemnity, we must have a source of income. Oh, good morning, monsieur. Oh, good morning. Good morning. I, I'm sorry to intrude upon you. I'm Dr. Jean Martel. This gentleman is Dr. Radice. We were sent here by President Thiers to discover, if possible, why your sheep have escaped the plague. Oh, you're quite welcome. My name is Annette. 
Annette Pasteur. I'm sure Father will be delighted to see you. Pasteur? Not Louis Pasteur, that... that chemist. Yes, monsieur. Uh, will you come this way? Uh, Father's back in the shed, vaccinating some sheep. Vaccinating? Yes, monsieur. Against the anthrax bacillus. The what? The microbe, monsieur. The germ that causes anthrax. Do you hear that, Martel? The germ. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, yes, yes. You seem to be very well informed, Mademoiselle Preston. Oh, thank you. I, I couldn't help but know something about it. Oh, Father, there's someone to see you. Oh, good morning, Monsieur. Dr. Martel and Dr. Raddy. Dr. Raddy. Oh, yes. So, Monsieur Pasteur, you are now the savior of the sheep, eh? Very interesting. You remember Pasteur Martel? He's the man who was responsible for Dr. Frederick's death, remember? He was run out of Paris. Not quite, Doctor. Oh, don't deny it, you were. And you were warned not to practice. Positively, they're bitten. What's that? <laughs> that sheep doesn't seem to agree with you, Dr. Reddy's. A prophet is never without his followers, it seems. But rarely such intelligent ones. These animals know what's good for them. Perhaps you'll tell me what's good for them. I'd like to know, too. Oh! Yes, monsieur? Come here. Oh, uh, will you try to explain to Dr. Radis just what we're doing? He's a member of the Academy of Medicine. So you'll have to use very simple language. Uh, we are convinced, Dr. Radis after eight years of experimenting, that this vaccine, when injected into the animal, will set up an immunity. Ridiculous. It would take 80 years to convince me. 80? Aren't you a bit optimistic? Well, the simple truth of the matter is that your fields are immune. It's impossible for sheep to be stricken in this neighborhood. And when I make my report to the Agricultural Board, I'm going to advise that all healthy cattle be moved to this district. No, you can't do that. I tell you, these fields are raging with contagion. They'll die by the thousands. Bah! Oh, come along, Martel. I've heard enough. Dr. Radice. Well, are you coming? No. I'm going to stay. Very well. Sit on. Still disobeying your superiors, eh, Dr. Martel? Why, I didn't think you remembered me. At the palace. The night I told the emperor, Comtesse de Villefort would die. You were right. She did die. Charbonnet's never forgiven you. Mm. Eh, it's a pity. May I ask why you want to stay? I'm no longer an idle courtier, monsieur. I work for the government. My job is to help the farmers of France. So, well, if you don't mind, I'd like to work with you, monsieur. Annette? Yes? Come here, dear. Uh, ask your mother if we have room for a guest. Oh, yes, I'm sure we have. Uh, oh, I mean, I'll see. Excuse me, monsieur. <laughs> My daughter blushes a pretty color. She, well, she's a very pretty girl, monsieur. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you want to render your country a real service, is that it? Why, uh, yes. Yes, I do. Uh, if you've discovered a vaccine against anthrax, it's my duty to make it known. And you think the Academy would be interested? If you can convince me, monsieur, I should be honored if you'd allow me to convince them. Thank you. Come along, Marcel. Perfect 
gentlemen, order. May continue, Dr. Martel. Thank you. Gentlemen, I have seen with my own eyes what Pasteur can do and has done for the cattle of Avoir. We, on the other hand, members of the Academy of Medicine, have contributed nothing in the fight against anthrax. Then in heaven's name, why don't we listen to a man who has? I agree. If someone's got a cure for anthrax, I want to know about it. So do I. Will the visitors in the gallery please refrain from talking? Mr. Chairman. Dr. Redis has the floor. Thank you. I have only one question to raise, and that is this. Whether Dr. Martel's purpose here is to further the cause of science or the cause of love. <coughs> Personally, I'm inclined to the latter view. <coughs> for having met Monsieur Pasteur's amiable daughter, I can hardly blame our young colleague for wanting to become his son-in-law. That's a lie. I'm here because I think Pasteur is right. I know he's right. Oh, the chair recognizes Dr. Rossignol. Dr. Rossignol. Friends. Colleagues, in my laboratory, I have found that I can produce anthrax in healthy sheep by injecting into their veins the dark, poisonous blood of an animal already affected. This treatment invariably results in death. I should like, therefore, to propose an experiment that would rid us once and for all of this medical mountebank, Louis Pasteur. What's your plan? Gentlemen, let us take 50 normal, healthy sheep. Twenty-five of which will be vaccinated by Monsieur Pasteur. The other twenty-five will remain as they are. I shall then infect all fifty sheep with anthrax by the method I have just explained. And I defy any man or any vaccine to save a one of them. Yes, Why, he wouldn't dare. Mr. Chairman. Dr. Charbonnet. I agree with Dr. Rossignol's experiment. We all agree. And we dare Dr. Martel or Louis Pasteur to try it. We dare him. Monsieur, I accept. Are, are you Louis Pasteur? I am. I've enjoyed listening to your discussion from the gallery here. And I repeat, I accept your challenge, Dr. Charbonnet. <laughs> The experiment has been carried out. Fifty sheep, all of them infected with the deadly anthrax bacillus. Half of them vaccinated by Pasteur. Will Pasteur's sheep live? Will the vaccine immunize them against anthrax? From all the world over come scientists to witness the experiment. They mingle with the peasants in the fields at Arbois. Suddenly a cry goes up. The unvaccinated sheep are dead. Then another cry which heralds the success of the experiment. Pasteur's sheep are alive. They have resisted the disease. Anthrax has been conquered. Well, Dr. Rossignol, are you convinced? Alive. All of them. Why, it's almost unbelievable. Monsieur, I offer my apologies. It's a triumph, monsieur. Yes, and for you too, my boy. Congratulations. For me? Uh, I'm not wrong, am I, Annette? Well, Joe and I, we're going to be married, Father. Well, I thought so. <laughs> the day he arrived, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> Monsieur Pasteur. Ah, uh, yes? May I congratulate you, sir? 
I've come all the way from Edinburgh to watch this experiment. Ah, thank you, thank you. Thank you, monsieur. My name is Lister. Lister? Dr. Lister? I feel it a great honor to be present. The the honor is mine, monsieur. I'm well acquainted with the work you're doing on antiseptics. (laughs) Thanks to you and your brilliant leadership. There's a mad dog loose. Uh, John, take Annette to the carriage. Take Annette. A man has been bitten. They've shot him. Yes, too late. Take him to the blacksmith. Take him up there. To the blacksmith. To have a red-hot iron burned deep into his flesh. Oh, poor fellow. All the doctors in Europe couldn't do more for him. If he doesn't get rabies, even after the cauterization... He'll be very lucky. To die of rabies. And yet, there must be a way, a cure. There must be. Louis, please sit still and eat your dinner. It's after 11 and you haven't had a bite to eat all day. But they're waiting for me in the laboratory. We're working, my dear. Let them wait. Look, I have a letter for you. It came by special post from England. From Dr. Lister. Let me see. Not until you've eaten. Oh, but it's important, Marie. I must know what it says. Very well. I'll read it to you. Dear sir, my observations lead me to believe that you are a scoundrel. What? I am told that in the year you've been in Paris, you've become a slave driver to your assistants. That you neglect your wife, abuse oh, your family. Oh, come, 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 Marie. This is no time to joke. Very well, I'll tell you what he really says. Your recent paper on the known sources of infection is admirable in every detail. Ah, a very clever man. Listen to this. Forgive the frankness with which a common love of science inspires me. I embrace you. My fellow workers in Brussels and Prague report that their hospitals are rapidly becoming safe. Mothers can go to them without fear. That's where our Annette should be sent to have a baby. I must tell Jean. Listen, there's more. I do not hesitate to acclaim you the most valuable man yet to enter the field of science. Good Lister. You see, Marie? Now I must work and work and work. Louis, what was that? Uh, nothing, Marie, nothing. Down uh, the laboratory, I heard it. it. it, it what well, is it? What is it? It's... It, 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 a dog! A mad dog! It's all right, Marie. We have a mad dog down there, oh, but... please, Louis, please, not hydrophobia. Don't work on hydrophobia. I may as well tell you, Marie. I've been trying to discover a cure for months. I've pledged myself to wipe it from the face of the earth. <laughs> Come in, come in, gentlemen. Oh, no. Come Thank in. You, Thank, you, Thank, Thank you, Dr. Lister. Thank you. I'm afraid I, <laughs> I haven't enough chairs. Find a little need for them in my laboratory. Uh, monsieur. Yes, Dr. Charbonnet? It is the wish of some of us that the Academy of Medicine honor you with this visit. Honor me? To be brief, Dr. Sarnoff has been reading your recent statements in the journal promising a cure for rabies. The press takes liberties, Doctor. As usual, my remarks were grossly exaggerated. In your last paper to the Academy, monsieur, you said you were on the threshold of a great discovery. 
Yes? Might I inquire if uh, you have crossed that threshold? Science takes a step, then another. Then it stops and reflects before taking a third. Go on, please. Step by step, messieurs, I'm reaching the ultimate conclusion that microbes are the cause of all disease. Microbes? Couldn't be. You You may not be skeptical. If germs are still a myth to you, then listen. In my hand, in this little test tube, I hold enough rabies virus to wipe out a city. May I see that test tube, monsieur? If you wish. Thank you. But be careful. Why? You have the tiniest scratch on your hand. A scratch? Suppose I make one on my arm with my penknife. What are you doing? And suppose I rub this so-called virus into the open wound like this. Stop him! Stop him! Stop him! We shall see whether germs cause disease. All I want now is to have you predict the hour of my death. There's Chauvenet now, sitting at the table. He seems to be enjoying his beer, too. Strange for a dead man, yeah. eh? <laughs> well, Chauvenet, how do you feel today? Very well, Dr. Redis. And you? <laughs> <laughs> it's over a month now. According to Pasteur, you should be in your grave. The more germs I've given, the better I feel. <laughs> I've come to warn you about Charbonnet. You can't afford to be made ridiculous. The work you're doing is too important. I wish it were important, but it isn't. Yes, but you seemed so confident the day I we were here. Still am. Every animal that was vaccinated with the contents of that test tube died, except Charbonnet. For some reason, he was able to resist the disease. Why? I don't know. Are you sure it was the same tube? Positive. It was the only specimen I had. You may have let it stand too long. You told me once that germs grow weaker, less virulent with age. Wait. It... It might be. Come into the laboratory. Oh! Marcel! Monsieur? Oh! How old was that virus when Charbonnet rubbed it into his arm? Fourteen days. And when was it last used on a rabbit, Marcel? Why, about a week before, I believe. A week? Are you sure? Oh, wait a minute, wait. Oh, here's the record. Nine days, to be exact. There's your answer, Rossignol. There it is. It must be. It's the only conceivable explanation. Well, do you think by allowing the virus to age that you were able to render it harmless? Not harmless, but weak. Weak enough for the system to overcome. Well, even if that's true, it won't help you any. When a man's bitten, he gets the germ full strength. Precisely. But suppose we start with a 14-day-old virus that's no longer deadly. Suppose we inject it into a healthy animal, and day by day, as nature builds up his resistance, we increase the doses with stronger, fresher samples until he's able to withstand the actual disease as we find it in the world at large. Would he not then be immune? No, impossible. It would never work. If the first injection didn't kill him, the second would, or the third... Martel. Yes, monsieur. Where are those tubes you've been preparing? Right here. They're all in order. Each one is dated. Here we are. Fourteen days. How many dogs have we left? Ten. Are they well? Healthy? In perfect condition. They've never been exposed. Give them hydrophobia. Monsieur! What? Give them hydrophobia!
14 days. Injections every day of Rossignol, and all of our dogs are alive and well. Yes, you've made them immune. Absolutely. And if it hadn't been for Charbonnet, we might never have discovered this treatment. <laughs> Poor Charbonnet. Little does he know that he's been our favorite guinea pig. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Marie? Will you come into the sitting room? There's a doctor to see you. A doctor? He brought a woman here and a little boy. I'd better go with you, Pastor. Yes, yes. Uh, come along. Oh, Mother. Oh, hush, dear. Good evening, Mr. Pastor. Yes, this is uh, Dr. Rossignol. Good evening, evening Doctor. I'm Dr. Pfeiffer. I apologize for not giving notice, but we've come all the way from Alsace. This is Madame Meister. Her child is a patient of mine. My little boy. My little Joseph. Good evening, Joseph. Good evening, monsieur. The boy was bitten. I've done all I could, but that isn't very much. Should he develop hydrophobia, oh, you can I... help him. They told us you could. Give me your hand, little fellow. Here, here. Don't be afraid. How long has it been? Eleven days. Uh, you cauterized the wounds? Not right away. Must have been 24 hours. It's a long time to wait. Does that mean I'm going to die? Of course it doesn't. Little boys don't die. They have too much to live for. I know he won't live. I know it. Last year he was our neighbor's child and now... Hey, quiet. <laughs> what has that to do with you? I'll save him. Save him. Marie, yes, Marie. Marie. Uh, put him to bed. See that he's kept warm. Come, Joseph. Don't be frightened. We'll go upstairs, shall we? Thank you. This way, Madame Meister. Is there anything you can do, monsieur? I don't know. I'm just experimenting. I have hopes, but... I don't know. You're quite sure the dog was rabid, Dr. Fiverr? Beyond a doubt. I made the test myself. The first symptoms shouldn't appear for at least two weeks. We might have time to produce an immunity. Be sure, I implore Don't you if this... Don't misunderstand me. My treatment has saved dogs. Ten of them. But I haven't the faintest notion what effect it would have upon a human being. If I failed, it would mean prison. Perhaps the guillotine. Since death is the only alternative for the boy, I'd be willing to try anything. Wouldn't you, Dr. Dr. Rossignol? No, I'm sorry. I can't agree. Much as I admire Pasteur's accomplishments, nevertheless, where human life is at stake, I'd hesitate a long while before going contrary to the best medical knowledge. Which, in the case of hydrophobia, is to let the patient die. We do what we can. We administer drugs and sedatives. Is there a single cure on rabbit? I'm not arguing for it. I'm merely pointing out what the accepted treatment happens to be. To embark upon a new course is always dangerous from a professional point of view and would be doubly so for Monsieur Pasteur, who is not a doctor... And could expect no support from the medical profession. Not in this For his sake, therefore, I strongly advise that nothing irregular be attempted. Good evening, gentlemen. Monsieur Pasteur, you're not going to listen to him, are you? A dog is one thing. But a human life. I don't know. Well, if you change your mind, don't hesitate to call me. Yes, Marie, I... I did. 
You'll go to prison. They'll send you to prison. Not so loud. He'll need his sleep. Pause for station identification. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Paul Muni resumes the story of Louis Pasteur shortly. In a few weeks, American audiences will see what is reported to be the finest picture ever made in Great Britain, called Fire Over England. Yet the ball of fire responsible for it is an American, William K. Howard of United Artists Studios, who was borrowed from Hollywood to direct it. It was just ten years ago that I met Mr. Howard at Paramount. He joined me later at the Mill Productions and has since directed films at Fox, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and Paramount, turning out such hits as White Gold, Transatlantic, Rendezvous, and Mary Burns' Fugitive. It was Mr. Howard who directed Paul Muni's first picture, The Valiant. Ladies and gentlemen, William K. Howard. Now, thank you, Mr. DeMille. Thank you. May I tell you how happy I am to meet you again and to appear on the same program with you and Mr. Muni? And may I congratulate you upon the success of that brilliant picture, The Plainsman, yours, hmm. that I had the pleasure of seeing last week. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Nice to hear you referring to my director, Mr. Muni, in The Valiant. That was an interesting experience because, well, Mr. Muni's first picture was almost his last. You see, the producers stopped production almost before it began. I'm sure that Paul recalled the first line he ever said in any motion picture. It was, I've just killed a man. And the producers thought that this speech would kill the picture and kill Muni. But the picture went on, and Paul Muni emerged, the great screen personality that he is today. It's very interesting, Bill. But please tell us something about England. Is it true what they say about the tea over there? I knew that was coming, CB, and here's the answer. Tea is almost as important to British production as the film itself. It goes something like this. One stops production for tea at 10 o'clock in the morning, then one stops production again for tea at 4 in the afternoon, and... Then one goes to the country for the weekend to rest up. <laughs> but seriously, CB, it would be absurd for us to dismiss British film production as a factor in our business. They're enthusiastic, they're aggressive, they are determined. They've tasted success with such pictures as Henry VIII, The Scarlet Pimpernel, I Was a Spy, 39 Steps, and they're going ahead in the hope of enjoying more of that success, which until now has been particularly ours. You sound to me like Paul Revere shouting, Here come the British. Not at all, CB. I'm shouting, Here come the Americans. If you could have been with me last summer in London, you would have seen uh, Marlena Dietrich, Sylvia Sidney, Edward G. Robinson, Anne Harding, Henry Fonda, all making English films. I'm sure you'd have thought you were in your own studio. London films are using the best British talent they can secure and the best American talent they can buy. They're going ahead, and I assure you they're a factor to be reckoned with. I was right. You are Paul Revere. You talk like a man who's taking the next boat back. Not the next boat, C.B., but next summer, surely. You see, when I'm directing, I'm generally in a fog anyway. I want all the sunshine I can get. And you know those London winters. Good night, C.V. <laughs> Good night, Bill. Good night. Back to the story of Louis Pasteur, starring Paul Muni. Three days have passed, and the little boy, Joseph is still alive. Pasteur, torn with anxiety, looks years older. His shoulders droop and his step lags. He's also worried about his daughter, Annette. And as he enters the living room, he sinks exhausted into a chair. Any news of Annette? Her time is drawing very near, that's all. 
What did the doctor say? He hasn't been here today. I sent Ron for him. They said he was ill. Ill? We'll have to get someone else. When it comes to the use of antiseptics, it's difficult to find one you can trust. I'll speak to Dr. Bedal in the morning. Louis, how is the boy doing? The third injection made him sick. He has a fever. A fever? What are you going to do? Do? Give him a fourth, a fifth, a sixth. If he lives. Marie, I've been lucky all my life. Luckier than I deserve. But if I fail now... You're not going to fail. He'll recover. And when he does, we'll go away. We'll take a long vacation. Who? Martel. All of them. They need it more than we do. How fine they've been. How patient. They'll never know how grateful I am. <laughs> and why don't you tell them? I will. I will. And you, Marie. You, most of all. What have I done to warrant such devotion? Do you remember what you said when you asked me to marry you? You said there's nothing in me to attract a young girl's fancy... But those who have known me very well have come to like me. <laughs> Did I say that? Was I really that vain? And you knew better, too. You were looking in a mirror when you spoke. Madame Pasteur. Yes, what is it, Cecile? Annette, madame. The coachman has just come from her house. She, she wants you. So soon? And Dr. Leclerc is ill, Louis. I go to the house. I'll find a doctor and meet you there. Hurry, Marie. Why doesn't he come? Why doesn't he come? He'll be here, madame. Don't worry. Did you boil the water, Cecile? Yes, madame. And there's sterile gods. Uh, in here. Louis. Yes. Is she all right? Yes, the doctor, Louis. I have one. Come in, doctor. This is my wife. Marie. This is uh, Dr. Charbonnet. Charbonnet? At your service, madame. But only because Dr. Leclerc is indisposed and Dr. Bedell is away on a vacation, eh, Pastor? Well, I... I had to have someone. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go to Annette. Cecile, come with me. Uh, would you mind picking up that instrument, no, please? not at all. Thank you. Well, where's the patient? Wait, you're, you're not going to use those instruments without boiling them? Certainly. I say no. My dear Pasteur, I'm doing this as a professional courtesy. Then, then do it my way, please. I'm a little tired of doing things your way. Today, 12 Russian peasants came to the hospital asking for your treatment for hydrophobia. What has that to do with... They said you sent them. I did. Dr. Charbonnet, my daughter is in that room. She's... There's not much time. Please. But I am to do things your way. Please. Very well. One moment, Pastor. What, what, what are you doing? I'm writing a statement for you. Concerning your work on the treatment of rabies. Dr. Charbonnet, this isn't the time. One moment, please. Uh, shall I read it to you? Listen. I hereby acknowledge that my investigations into the cause of hydrophobia has proven fruitless and is of no value whatsoever. That's not true. If you will kindly sign that statement, I shall follow your instructions exactly. Well? Give me the pen. Thank you, monsieur. If I live another month without developing hydrophobia, I shall feel justified to publish this note in the leading scientific journals of Europe. Take off your coat. <laughs> of course. Now, roll up your sleeves. And 
Wash your hands. Here. Wash them thoroughly. To the elbows. To the elbows. What's in that basin? Don't worry. It's just a little chloride. It won't hurt you. Here we are. Now, you'd better use the brush, too. Hey, the, brush, the brush, the brush, the brush. Oh, that's very that's well. That's right. That's right. Cecile! Yes, monsieur? Take this instrument. Put them into boiling water and keep them there until Dr. Charbonnet asks for them. Yes, monsieur. There we are. Well, I think my hands are quite clean now. Now, there's a towel at your elbow. Thank you. Yes, uh, are you ready? Except for my bag. Oh, here it is. Don't touch it. What? Put it down! Your hands! You've boiled it now. You'll have to wash them again. See here, you're making a fool out of me. I've brought hundreds of babies into the world. Do as I say. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Thoroughly. Wash them thoroughly. Now, hold them up high. Touch nothing but the patient. Doctor. Yes, Marie. My daughter is ready now, Dr. Charbonnet. Louis, are you asleep? We have a grandson. Do you hear? A grandson. Louis, wake up. Dr. Charbonnet, come here. Louis. Louis. What's the matter? My husband is. He doesn't answer me. Quiet, please. What is it, doctor? He's not... No. He's had a stroke. You see, Jean... He's opening his eyes. He'll be all right now. Marie. Yes, Louis. I'm here. My left side is paralyzed. Only slightly. It isn't serious. When did it happen? A few days ago. A few days? You were more tired than anything else. I have no fear of death, Marie. No fear. Oh, Jean. The Meister boy. How is he? He's doing splendidly. Thank God. Thank God. And the Russians, were you able to help them? No, the hospital refused to allow our treatment without permission from the academy. Permission was granted this morning, but too late. Three of them died yesterday. Horribly. Let let me up. I must go. Louis, please. Let me up. How many are left? Nineteen, but it's no use. It's hopeless. If our efforts can save one, it will be worth it. Help me up, someone. Get me dressed. Order the carriage. I'm going to the hospital. Faster, man. Faster. Patient number six, first treatment. 14-day-old virus. Give it to him, Lou. Yes, monsieur. Patient number seven, fourth day. Any change? Not this morning. Continue treatment 11. 11-day virus. Patient number eight. Monsieur Pasteur. Hmm? Oh, good morning, Dr. Charbonnet. I've been watching your patients, monsieur. They're doing very well. Yes, indeed. Even better than I hoped. Uh, Charbonnet, I didn't thank you for delivering my grandchild. You... You've been ill, monsieur. I'm sorry. Perhaps this note will speed your recovery. Note? 
The statement I ask you to sign. I'm giving it back to you. No. A bargain's a bargain. There is your note, monsieur. I was wrong. And now I ask you for one thing more. Yes? I want the Pasteur treatment for hydrophobia. How is Monsieur Pasteur today? Oh, I don't know, Jean. He's, he's so tired. He seems to have lost all interest. Did you tell him about the meeting at the academy tonight? No, no, but he won't go. He doesn't care very much. But they're about... expecting him. I know. Yes, I know. Tell him someone's going to refute his theories. He'll care about that. <laughs> Perhaps. Where is he? In the living room with Joseph. I'd better see him. Joseph's mother's here to take him home. I'll wait at the academy. Louis, Madame Meister's waiting. One moment. Well, Joseph, you're going home. Yes, monsieur. Thank you. Come here. Can you write? Yes, sir. Would you like to write to me? Yes, very much. Then let me hear from you every month, won't you? Yes, monsieur. Now, don't forget. I'll be looking for your letter. Goodbye, Joseph. Goodbye. Goodbye, there, Pastor. Goodbye, dear. Well... I never thought he'd leave here alive, Louis. Thank God that he did. Oh, by the way, Louis, Rue just told me that a foreign scientist is giving a lecture at the Academy this afternoon. He claims to have disproven your entire germ theory. What? Again? Who is he? What's his name? I don't know. Disprove my theory, eh? We've got to go. We'll see about that. Get your coat. We'll leave at once. At once. Come in, monsieur. Uh, you're just in time. They've arranged for you to sit on the platform. Courage, my dear. I'll be listening. Uh, this way, monsieur. Whom are they, are they applauding? It's Dr. Lister from England. Lister? Lister to speak against me? Oh, here. Here's the door leading to the platform. Now, your chair is over this way. Oh! Oh, what... What is it? Why, it's you. They're applauding you. Why, I don't understand you, you said Lister. Well, there's no one speaking against your theory. Oh, here he is now. Is your pastor... I greet you in the name of humanity. Lister. Great Lister. Monsieur Pasteur, from His Majesty the Tsar of Russia, the Diamond Cross of the Order of St. Anne, with our profoundest gratitude. You young men, doctors and scientists of the future, do not let yourselves be tainted by a barren skepticism, nor discouraged by the sadness of certain hours that creep over nations. Do not become angry at your opponents, for no scientific theory has ever been accepted without opposition. Live in the serene peace of libraries and laboratories. Say to yourselves first, what am I accomplishing? Until the time comes 
when you may have the immense happiness of thinking that you have contributed in some way to the welfare and progress of mankind. Paul Muni in his Oscar-winning role of Louis Pasteur in The Story of Louis Pasteur. Do go and check out his films if you want to see how it's done properly. On to the competition then. In the last episode, I asked you to give me your worst name for a pirate captain, and you stepped up. J.C.L. Sessa was very busy. He sent in Captain Chrysanthemum. Arr, I would follow you anywhere, Captain Chrysanthemum. Captain Coxcomb, Captain Sunflower, Captain Saffron, Captain Basil, Captain Haggis, which sounds like it should exist in a Tintin book. He also says Captain Orange, because nothing rhymes with it. A terrible name for shanties. I agree with you, J.C. He also sent in Captain Crunch, as did many, many others. <laughs> Tad Ringwald sent in Captain Strapton. Mike Rose sent in <laughs> Captain Felix Helix Balls. <laughs> G Stucky sent Captain Kitty Boots. Grindhouse Dave sent in Captain Percival Gruntfoot. <laughs> I nearly said that wrong. Uh, Captain Percival Gruntfuttock. <laughs> Archibald Popplewell and Captain Juan Can't Swim. Love that, Dave. Love it! <laughs> Sparky Wright sent in Captain Antoniel. I see what you did there. Crocoduck sent in Captain Carmichael Ripplebottom and Shlomo Liebschitz. Pixel Strike Pod sent in Captain Satin and then sent in the absolutely brilliant... Captain Tin 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 Tin, which I thought was genius, but then I realised that Pixel Strike Pod is my daughter Molly, so obviously she can't win. Greg Worley said, "Ah, Captain, how about Captain Cheeky Sauvignon?" Loving that one. A little too much, actually. Ask my wife. Leah Young said. Leah Young sent in Captain Piss Flaps. And a few others that I don't have the time to bleep out. It would sound like Morse code. <laughs> Lots of others. My apologies if I didn't read yours out. Thank you all for entering. You really stepped up and you're all awesome. Have a Canterbury, everyone. Canterbury. Have a hat full of Canterburys. Canterbury. Canterbury. The winner I have chosen is an early entry from Sparky Wright, who sent me a message saying simply, Pure pirate scum this one. Captain I said what she said, Captain I said what. <laughs> I have to say that. Very good. Round of applause to all of you, you clever swabs. So, Sparky Wright, if you email me with your address at adam at adamboyclarence.com, I'll pop the three movies into the post for you. Well, sorry to nip off again so soon, but this is the fifth and last show in this series of episodes. I'll be back with the next five in a couple of weeks once I've completed the next special episode. Episode 21. A universe of horror. 
the story of universal horror movies. It's a good, fun one, I can tell you that. It's definitely shaping up now. It's a lot more in the vein of sex in monochrome. So many movies to tell you about, so many classics, and so many duds, as well as some remarkable people and some fascinating stories. So I hope to see you there, just a few weeks away now. You can keep up with me by following me on Twitter at at attaboyc, or by liking the Facebook page at facebook.com slash attaboyclarence. If you want to email me, you can do so at adam at attaboyclarence.com. It's always fun to chat with you folks. And if you're stuck for something to do in the next couple of weeks, please take a couple of minutes to leave a review on iTunes. It's like caffeine for podcasters. It definitely makes us perkier. My wife is very grateful every time a nice review goes up. It means I leave her alone for five minutes so I can read it. So thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for the recommends, the retweets, and the reviews. And I'll be waiting for you in episode 21 in a few weeks' time. Take care of yourselves and have a marvellous August. Bye for now. Once in one's life, one finds one. Someone who turns one's heart around. Next thing one knows, one's closing down the town. Wake up and she's still with one Even though one left her way across town One's wondering to oneself Hey, what has one found? When one gets caught between the moon and New York City One knows it's crazy But it's true When one gets caught between the moon and New York City One can do, best one can do is fall in love. Now look at the gorse bush, barely visible behind its curtain of cobwebs this morning. I see the slag traps are beginning to bear fruit. Only the gadflies would shun my gladiolus immaculatum. When one gets caught between the moon and New York City, one knows it's crazy, but it's true. When one gets caught between the moon and New York City, the best one can do. Best one can do is fall in love. When one gets caught between the moon and New York City, one knows it's crazy, but it's true. When one gets caught between the moon and New York City, the best one can do, best one can do is fall in love. It's wonderful to see the rhubarb coming up so beautifully. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. 
So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.